0: Whatever happened to Russia's cyber war against Ukraine? And the curious case of a cardiologist who's been accused of moonlighting as a ransomware developer? These stories and more, coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Whatever happened to the cyber war that Russia was meant to unleash on Ukraine? Few thought to disagree that in the event of an invasion, Moscow was sure to order a furious online assault, taking power plants offline, scrambling defenders' communications, and sowing mass chaos. But as Russia's invasion of Ukraine nears its half-year mark, experts find themselves reevaluating long-held assumptions and grappling with surprising developments that few saw coming. Russia's constant probing of Ukrainian networks, leading to some government sites getting knocked offline, has yet to cause massive disruptions. Perhaps the concept of a cyber war was overhyped, but there's plenty of cyber about, including a range of activity we and partners have already attributed to Russia. That's Jeremy Fleming, the head of the UK's Security, Intelligence and Cyber Agency, GCHQ. Make no mistake, Russia has been trying to disrupt Ukrainian systems. Wiper malware has been a feature of the conflict. Cybersecurity firm Trellix counts more than a dozen wipers that it traces to Russian or Russian-allied forces. Mikko Hupanin, chief research officer with WizSecure, says wiper malware has caused chaos, not least for civilians.
1: And when people ask for, like, What they have really accomplished, what has Russia really accomplished with their cyber attacks? I think the best example we saw on the very first day of the war, there were 36 up to 40-hour queues on Ukraine-Poland border where women and children were trying to flee the theater of the war and they couldn't leave and people were stumped, like, why are the borders closed? Are the borders closed? They weren't closed. But the computers of the Ukraine border control had been wiped by hermetic wiper, which was developed and deployed by GRU from Russian military intelligence. That's what cyber war looks like in the real world.
0: Russia has also attempted to make some major hits on critical infrastructure in support of military objectives. But is this
1: really qualifying as being a cyber war? Cyber war is not a useful term for us. Uh, what we are seeing here is not cyber war. What we are seeing is a war with cyber. That's the operational security
0: expert known as the grug. He says the concept of cyber war is so imprecise as to be essentially meaningless. Instead, he favors terminology such as cyber operations, which better encapsulates the fact that cyber never gets used in a vacuum. Now, another takeaway from the war is that while many experts expected Russia to hack and crash power stations or Ukraine's ATM machines, none of that has happened. Instead, the Grug says, cyber has been used extremely tactically to support military operations. So this is the first war
1: where cyber has played a large, um, you know, a major and an instrumental role, in fact, um, and... The, you know, the Russians have not done what we wanted them to do, what we expected them to do, um, but they have done what makes the most sense, um, given what they were trying to do in general. For example, on the first
0: day of the invasion, Russia successfully disrupted access to Viasat's KASAT satellite network from Ukraine. But this didn't have the impact Moscow likely anticipated. Kyiv was able to get a replacement service from satellite provider SpaceX's Starlink up and running in just a few days. Ukraine's military has also shown itself to be highly adaptable, the Grug says. If Russian attacks disable IT networks, for example, government officials often resort to using smartphones and messaging apps to communicate. Likewise, when the IT networks that run the country's railways were disrupted, officials switched to a Soviet-era analog backup system. As that highlights, Russia's very much continuing to try and disrupt Ukraine via targeted cyber attacks. But the Russian government hasn't been highlighting the fact that many of these efforts seem to have failed.
2: One of the unfortunate things is the Russians have done a pretty good job of basically spreading disinformation that they're not aggressively attacking. Uh, If you actually look at the facts uh, in the lead up to the war, there were numerous probing and, and, and intrusive attacks that basically prepositioned for the invasion. And then the day before the uh, G- February 24th invasion, we saw the, the GRU, which is their in, in military intelligence arm, launch wiperware and other aggressive attacks on 300 systems in 12 different organizations that are all impacting the government and its command and control structures.
0: That's Chad Sweet. A former U.S. Department of Homeland Security chief of staff, who's now CEO of consultancy, the Chertoff Group.
2: It's just factually false that the Russians aren't attacking. They're actually very aggressively attacking. The good news, though, is our Ukrainian allies, uh, we've been assisting them in their preparation for just such an attack as this. And so they're, part of the reason it's not grabbing the headlines is they're doing a pretty good job uh, on the defense.
0: Indeed, experts say the big Russian cyber war anticlimax is due in part to Ukraine, having gotten very good at cyber defense. Having been repeatedly targeted by Russia since 2014, the country has had a lot of practice. Nevertheless, as the war continues, so too do the cyber surprises. Once again, here's With Secure's Mikko Hupanin.
1: There's been many surprises, like the fact that Ukrainian government officials are openly recruiting foreign citizens to break their own laws and, and target Russian targets with cyber attacks, which we've seen in no other war ever ever in history. I'm surprised by the fact that Western technology companies like Microsoft and Google are there in the battlefield supporting Ukraine against governmental attacks from Russia, which is, again, something we've never seen in any, any other war. Those are just a handful of
0: the now large list of cyber lessons that have already been learned from the ongoing conflict. Of course, when it comes to the use of cyber operations to support a military invasion, who knows what might happen
2: next. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news.
0: Next up, as part of his ongoing Ransomware Files podcast, ISMG's Jeremy Kirk details a curious case involving Moses Gonzalez, a doctor in Venezuela who the U.S. has charged with building and selling a notorious strain of ransomware.
3: The FBI's most wanted list for cybercrime recently gained a new entry, his wanted poster has a photo of him with a stethoscope and wearing a doctor's white overcoat.
2: Moises Segala is a cardiologist in his mid-50s who lives in Ciudad Bolivar in Venezuela. In addition to being a cardiologist, uh, he, as charged in the government's complaint, he also designs, sells, uh, and rents and licenses out ransomware.
3: That's Alexander Mindlin, who is an assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York. It's the federal court where Moses Zagala would face trial. Alexander would prosecute the case. The government alleges Zagala is an old-school hacker who kept up his skills from the late 1990s onward. They allege that he created Jigsaw Version 2, a standalone ransomware program, and Thanos, which is a ransomware builder. A ransomware builder is an application that can generate other unique ransomware programs. Security experts have seen evidence that both programs were used by cybercriminals against companies and organizations around the world over the last few years. Lindsay Kay is an expert malware analyst and a senior director with the computer security firm Recorded Future. She co-authored a report on Thanos that was released in June 2020. I asked Lindsay what she thought about the code's quality, and I want to make a note here as well about Lindsay's response. When chatting about Thanos, we often referred to its developer using the pronoun he inadvertently. That's not intended to mean the developer is Moses. That is an accusation that is being made by the U.S. government, and as they say, he is innocent until proven guilty. So after taking a look at this code, would the person who designed Thanos likely be able to get a job as a software programmer? Or I guess to, uh, <laughs> to put it another way, how good was this evil code?
4: This thing that he built, and if he built it on his own, there's at least some software engineering skill set and principles there. Um, so at least kind of at a basic level, yeah, he could probably be a software engineer. It's really hard to kind of tell if just he wrote this or he didn't kind of start with another skeleton of code or he didn't get a lot of examples off the internet because you know right now there's we've access to so much available that it's like could he have taken a bunch of pieces and just knew enough to cobble them together versus did he write all of the code on his own so it's a little hard to say there but clearly he is not incompetent in the ability to put together code and make it work
3: by all appearances, Moses is a respected person in the community. He appears to be married to a kidney doctor named Rosani. He's been working at a private clinic in Ciudad Bolivar. Anna Vanessa Herrero is a top-notch journalist based in Caracas who's reported for the New York Times and the Washington Post. She's been tracking down Moses, his family, his friends, even his patients. She recently made contact with Guillermo, one of Moses's brothers.
0: So I need to tell you what happened today. Um, I contacted Guillermo on Facebook.
3: Oh, great. What, what did he have to say?
0: Well, I said that you and I were working on this and uh, he immediately attacked
3: me. There's much, much more in this episode of The Ransomware Files. It's called Dr. Ransomware Part 1 and there's a Part 2 coming as well. You can find it on ISMG's websites or wherever you get your podcasts. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk.
0: Cyber Insurance Provider Coalition has just gotten a serious amount of funding. To discuss, I'm joined by Michael Novinson, ISMG's Managing Editor for Business. Michael, given the state of the stock market and the levels of cybersecurity funding we're seeing, are you surprised by Coalition getting this infusion?
4: I am. Really, what was eye-opening to me was seeing the valuation, $5 billion. Those types of valuations in this economy are few and far between especially given that in September of 2021, the company was valued at just $3.5 billion. So their market cap has gone up more than 40% at a time when NASDAQ and most publicly traded cybersecurity companies have seen their stocks falling more from 20 to 30% or even more. I think it speaks to the value of the market that they're in and the value of their approach. So Coalition is probably the largest of the pure play cybersecurity insurance vendors. A lot of their competition at this point is from Traditional insurance companies like AIG and Chubb who've moved into the cyberspace, but coalition benefits from really having the knowledge and the expertise of the cyber market and having a sense of how to price things out appropriately since they have a better understanding of the risk they're dealing with with certain companies. And compared to peers who've taken on the cyber insurance market, they got there a little bit earlier and they're a little bit larger. So they have a little bit more scale to draw from as they determine how to position themselves and their customers in the market.
0: So would you say that cyber insurance itself is a hot market, or does this funding, and as you were saying, the $5 billion valuation for coalition, perhaps reflect more on its approach?
4: I think it's a combination of both. Definitely a hot market. When I speak with managed service providers or CISOs, it's probably the topic that comes up more than any other, in part because a lot of these companies have faced just brutal premium hikes when they've tried to go for renewals because the insurers, particularly in 2020 and in 2021 as well, incurred such high losses on ransomware attacks that customers who often are required for regulatory purposes to carry cyber insurance now are really stuck between a rock and a hard place. So I think there's been a, a lot of thought given to how to make this profitable. I mean, in terms of coalition, that they've benefited from some of the data analytics work they've done as well as some of the advisory work that they do in terms of working with customers around adopting best practices. So the executives over there told me that they did not take the types of losses that traditional insurers had in 2020 and 2021, and therefore didn't have to hit their customers with the same types of premium hikes as some of the traditional insurers did, which which has only helped to further grow their customer base.
0: I noticed that one of the products that they're offering is executive risk coverage to help Organizations better understand the risk of cybersecurity incidents that could impact their executives. Interesting sounding offering. Is that something that you've seen being offered by other firms?
4: In terms of the pure play cyber insurance companies, not really because it is an adjacent market and investors typically want to see competency in one area before you move into complementary markets. For Coalition, I think this is really about having future parity with the AIGs and the chubs of the world. And realizing, I know we talk about vendor consolidation a lot, that customers really don't want to have to have two separate vendors, one for executive risk coverage and one for cyber insurance. And certainly when you're talking about large enterprises, they're expected to have both. So I think Coalition realized it was a common objection or a reason they might lose out to a traditional insurer is not even that the traditional insurer had a better cyber insurance offering, but that the customer needs both and they don't want to work with two separate vendors. So I think they recognize the importance of being able to match from a future standpoint. And I think what's maybe a little different for a cyber insurance provider is having to think in terms of executive risk beyond purely cybersecurity and taking in other dimensions of risk as well. So it does require some, some different telemetry, some different data, maybe some visibility into what the executive is doing outside of working hours and outside of business devices as well. But they do think that this will make it easier for them to compete and win against the traditional insurers
0: fascinating to see how this market continues to evolve. Michael, thank you for joining me to talk the business and cybersecurity businesses and specifically insurance
4: today. You're very welcome, Matt. Thanks for the time. That's
0: the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Thanks for listening.